Well, I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. In fact, we'll be in John 10 this Sunday and next. We'll be looking at the first part this week and the latter part next week. John chapter 10. It's been said before that either Jesus is Savior or he's insane. It's true. Some of you are probably familiar with the famous C.S. Lewis quote from his book, Mere Christianity, where he writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, namely, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say, he writes. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. Later on in an essay, Lewis would go on to write and elaborate further on this same quote, an essay called, What Are We to Make of Jesus? He says, we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people that actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval of him. One of the things that I'm reminded of throughout the I am statements and throughout the account that we'll look at this morning, and certainly Lewis was pressing into this as well, is this. It is impossible to be neutral with Jesus. You will either seek him and find him as your greatest treasure and therefore adore him and worship him and follow him and serve him all your days, or you will not. You will live out your days in rejection of him and thinking somewhere along the way that this man must have been crazy. You might think, some might think, and some would even say that you can appreciate Jesus without really committing to him. But friend, if you, if you have arrived at that conclusion, that you can appreciate Jesus without really committing to him, you've not read the New Testament. So with all that in mind, let's pick up and read John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is picking up here with Jesus speaking, and we'll get the context to this in a bit. 
Jesus is writing or speaking here, and he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. As we walk through the seven I am statements, today we come to number three. We've looked at the bread of life, we've looked at the light of the world, how Jesus, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. Today we come to him saying, I am the door. In fact, in John chapter 10, we have two of these statements. Next week we'll look at verse 11 and following, where he says, I am the good shepherd. And in, in a lot of ways, these, these two statements, I am the door, I am the shepherd, or the good shepherd, uh, kind of uh, are, are connected in this context. And so there'll be some bleeding over back and forth this week and next week as we consider these two. But we're going to really try to focus our attention with him being the door today. But when you think about all of these I am statements, these are, these are audacious claims. These are intense moments when Jesus says the things that he says to the people in which he says them because of what he is claiming. And with each statement, it's as if he's making the line in the sand all the more clear. Now, before we get too far into chapter 10, I think it's helpful and important, and I would say critical for us to understand the context in which he says this. And in order to do that, we really need to understand what was happening in chapter 9. Now, in chapter 9, we have the account of the healing of the man born blind. Remember that account, and if not, you can go back and read that maybe this afternoon and, and meditate upon that. And once this sermon is finished, you can see maybe even more clearly how this is... Uh, unfolding that or, or helping us understand really what's going on here. But there we have an account of a man born blind. You remember uh, this, uh, ver, ver, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man bo uh, blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember that. And Jesus tells them, it wasn't either. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in this man's life. And really what you have there is, is after that, the Pharisees kind of get wind of what's going on. The man's brought to the Pharisees, and there's this extended 
controversy or debate that takes place in chapter 9 about this man's healing. Jesus heals him. No longer is he blind. He, he can see, and there's some excitement over that. And there are two responses to the healing of this blind man. In chapter 9, verse 24, we have the response of the Pharisees. Look at it. Chapter 9, verse 24. So for the second time, they call the man, the Pharisees, who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. It's the Pharisees' take on the situation. Man is healed by Jesus, therefore Jesus is a sinner. A lot of sins, doesn't it? That's their take. They rejected the blind man's testimony and even cast him out. They weren't buying it. So there's one response. Jesus is a sinner. Second response, chapter 9, verse 38. After hearing the Pharisees cast the man out, Jesus finds the blind man and brings him to himself and reveals who he actually is to this man. We see that in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found them, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus asked him this question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Second response. Faith and worship. Same event, same situation takes place. Two very different responses. One accuses Jesus of being a sinner and a, uh, an imposter, basically, and the other falls at his, at his feet, believes in him, and worships him. So all of this sets up chapter 10. Because if you look there, sometimes our chapters, chapter divisions mess us up. Just ignore them. They really weren't there in the original, okay? They were put in later to help us find the text. So they're, they're kind of a help aid. They weren't inspired of the Holy Spirit. Numbers, um, they just weren't there. The chapter divisions, the verses. And so when you read chapter 9, it goes, there's no transition there. There's no break. Might be in your Bible, but in, in, in the original version, there, there was no break here. Verse 41 Jesus, or excuse me, verse um, 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So the irony of chapter nine is that it was really the Pharisees that were blind. And this blind man was made to see. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you. He just goes on and now into this, this figure of speech or parable-like illustration that he gives. What he's doing here now in chapter 10 is he's further exposing the blindness of the Pharisees while at the same time magnifying the truth of who he is. In chapter 9, the Pharisees basically discredit count Jesus, discredit him. They throw him out, accusing him of being a sinner. Chapter 10, he comes and actually exposes the Pharisees of being the thieves and robbers and makes the claim that, no, in fact, he is 
the door to the sheepfold. Now, we come to chapter 10. We have this, verse 6, Jesus says this is a figure of speech. It's kind of like a parable. Not quite the same, but very similar to a parable. And in this figure of speech, we have a sheep, we have sheep, we have a sheep fold or a sheep pen. We have a thief and robber. We have a shepherd and a gatekeeper and strangers. This is kind of the story. And Jesus kind of, in the first six verses, here's the, here's the situation. And when you think about all that's going on here, obviously, when as Christians, we think about this text, it's, it's pretty clear of what this is communicating, right? Should have been clear to the Pharisees, but we're told in verse 6, they didn't understand. They don't get it. They don't understand the figure of speech. Again, demonstrating that they are ultimately the ones who are blind. As we come to this text this morning, I want us to see three promises that Jesus gives for those whose eyes have been opened to him. Three promises that Jesus gives for those whose eyes have been opened, blind, been, able to, been made able to see those who have entered the door to the sheepfold. Three promises that he gives to those. Pretty simple and straightforward as we walk through this passage, but I think very critical. Number one, first promise that we have is that in Christ, we have eternal life. In Christ, we have eternal life. And if I could add anything to that point, I would add the word only before the word in. Only in Christ, we have eternal life. Again, it's important that we keep in mind contextually who Jesus is talking to. Again, we see there's no break. It's just a continued story as Jesus continues to interact with these Pharisees. He's still addressing the Pharisees, and it's helpful to see that. It's helpful to really see how chapter 10 is is, um, constructed. So in the first six verses, we have this figure of speech. Jesus makes no claim in in the first six verses. He just simply lays out the scene, doesn't he? He gives, there's sheep, there's a sheepfold, there's thieves and robbers, there's a stranger. You kind of get the picture, except for the Pharisees. They don't get it. There's a flock, there's only one way into the sheepfold. The sheep follow the shepherd, not strangers. Thieves and robbers try to get into the sheepfold and they don't get it. So Jesus in his kindness goes further. In verses seven through 10, Jesus identifies himself as the door to the sheepfold, to the sheep pen, and what he's ultimately providing for his sheep. And then in verses 11 through 18, Jesus identifies himself, as we'll see next week, as the shepherd, as the good shepherd of the sheep and explains further what he's done for his flock. So in the first six verses, Jesus just unfolds this parable. In verse 7, he helps these confused Pharisees begin to connect the dots. He didn't have to do that. But in his kindness, he does. Okay, you don't get it? Let me go further. Let me just lay it out for you. Let me be clear. Verse 7. I am the door. There's a sheepfold. And if you want to be one of the sheep, you're going to go through the door. And I'm that door. You want in? You've got to come through me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's the only way in and out of the sheepfold. Now, a sheepfold, we have to understand in that day and time that 
designed in various different ways, but by and large, you would find a sheepfold. Some of them were round, some of them were, were not round. They were different shapes, but they were made oftentimes of stone walls and the stone walls would have like uh, uh, branches and different kinds of brush on tops to keep the wild animals from getting over the wall into the sheep pen. And there was usually only one door one opening in the wall that the sheep would go in and out. And so to be part of that sheepfold where they would find rest, particularly for the night, they would go in and out of this gateway or this door to get into the sheep pen so that they could rest. And, and then in the morning, they would go right back out and graze in the pastures nearby. And a lot of times, shepherds would hire um, gatekeepers. That's where you see the reference to the gatekeeper in verse 3 to be there through the night. And in many times, there was no actual gate. The shepherd or the gatekeeper served as the door. The shepherds were oftentimes going to sleep in the doorway so that if the sheep were to get in, they had to go through him. If any wild animal was going to try to attack, had to go through the, through the shepherd. That's kind of the scene that we have here. And Jesus is, is just giving them this picture, and he's making clear now for them because they don't understand. He's like, listen, here's the figure of speech if you're going to get into the sheepfold, you got to come through me. I am the door. The only way in, the only way out. Here's what Jesus is teaching here is an absolutely essential point of doctrine. Essential. Absolutely, this is an essential piece to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is only one way to God. There is only one gospel. There is only one way of access into the church, into the kingdom of God, and that is in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. That's not a popular message. It's not a popular message to say that today, nor was it in Jesus' day for that matter. Even some in the church that have had a difficult time truly embracing the clarity and the extent of this teaching. You'll hear it. You, you mean that, that decent people who really try, even though they're in another religion, they're doing their best. You mean to tell me they're not in? What about those who never hear the gospel? They've never had a chance to say yes or no. Well, that's flawed theology from the get-go because we know, according to the Bible, all of us are born with a no. You're not born neutral. Friends, Jesus couldn't be any clearer about the way into the fold. He's it. He's it. A lot of times this does come up in the context of missions. Well, if you're telling me that if somebody never has an opportunity to share the go or hear the gospel, that they're going to die in their sin and be punished forever. Because that's what the Bible teaches. And the worst thing that we could do, if they're okay, if you say, well, he kind of exempts those people. If they're okay, the worst thing we could do would be send missionaries to them to tell them the gospel with the chance that they might say no. So we just need to shut down missions if the nations are okay outside of Christ. Maybe the worst thing that we could do is to send a missionary to them. Because then there's this ideally 50-50 chance they could say yes, they could say no, but if they're okay without it, then why would we send them? 
Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Jesus is quite clear. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ is critical to the message of the gospel. And indeed, there is no gospel without it. Salvation does not come from any other source. It does not come through any other religion or any other means. This year, we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. The doctrines that fueled that movement, we often refer to as the five solas. Five onlys. Scripture alone, salvation comes by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We're just saying, in Christ alone, didn't we? If you don't believe in the exclusivity of Jesus, there's a contradiction there, even in your singing this morning, isn't there? These are beliefs that men and even women died for. Christ alone, he's the door, he's the way, the truth, and the life. We'll get to that one later on. Friend, I would just tell you, if you're here with us today and you've been trying to find peace with God, you realize that you're not a, not a Christian. You're, you're wanting peace with God. You've just been trying to figure out how that happens. Jesus is telling you how that can happen. He, he's saying that you must come through him. If you're going to enter the sheepfold, you must come through the gates. You must come by believing in the person and finished work of Christ. That's how you come. And if you're trying to make peace with God some other way, by living a moral life, Some would tell you that you can make peace with God by keeping seven sacraments. Or you think that somehow that that all faiths lead to ultimately the same place, then friend, you will never find the peace that you truly need. The Bible tells us clearly that God is our creator and that he is holy. He is righteous. He is good. He is all of these wonderful things. And that he created us to live in perfect communion, perfect fellowship with him. But instead of doing that, we all turned our back against him. And in Adam, we all sinned. And in Adam, we have incurred a guilt that we all deserve the righteous judgment of God. We've broken his laws. As a result, we all stand condemned. And friend, the only way that you and I can ever be reconciled and have peace with God is to quit trusting in our good works, quit looking for other things, and to rest completely in the finished work of Jesus. Friend, if you would simply quit looking to you and quit looking to the things of this world and look to Christ, rest in him, believe in him, you will be saved. That is your hope. That is the promise God has made to sinners. Look to him and you will be saved. Another word that I think is important for us as a church is that we need to beware of imposters. 
Jesus highlights this fact here in this text as he talks about thieves and robbers, and I think he's helping the Pharisees understand that he's, that's who they are. That's who they are. There are these thieves and robbers try to come into the sheepfold another way, not through the door, not through the gate, but another way. And we know from verse 10 that they come to steal, kill, and destroy. Thankfully, by the grace of God, the sheep don't listen to their voice. We need to understand, church, that there are many today, many, many, many false teachers standing in pulpits all throughout this land, throughout the world, masquerading as heralds of truth. And I would just tell you that anyone who would teach that salvation comes in any other way but Jesus is a thief and a robber. There are those who will say, well, Jesus is good. If you want to trust in him, that's good. But there, there are all these other things that you can do as well. Thieves and robbers. Remember chapter 9. The Pharisees had cast the man out because they didn't believe in the, the sign, the miracle that Jesus performed. And instead of celebrating and rejoicing in the healing of this man, they reject him and his testimony. Look, look what the Pharisees are attempting to do. If we could kind of bring chapter 10 back into chapter 9 for a moment, the Pharisees are trying to be the gatekeepers into the, God, into the kingdom of God, aren't they? They're trying to stand in the doorway and say, no, this isn't the right thing. This, this guy's a sinner. They're trying to be the door. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus clarifies the reality by saying, I am the door. I am the one who chooses who goes in and out of the sheepfold. I am the door. Let's make that clear. Friends, it might be easy to see how the Pharisees are serving in this capacity. And it's, it's pretty straightforward from this text that Jesus is in fact the door, but I think that this also really should serve as a warning to us because if we're not careful, we can grow to become like the Pharisees. We can add things to the door or we can, if we're not careful, create other doors of access to the sheepfold. We need to be careful that we're not doing the same thing that the Pharisees did. We can often act as, if, act as the door ourselves by setting up certain rules, by requiring a certain kind of lifestyle or this or that prior to entering the sheepfold. And you come into the sheepfold, Jesus transforms you and he gives you a new heart. He gives you new eyes, he gives you a new mind, he gives you new everything so that you begin to want to live a life of righteousness. But you don't live a life of righteousness before you come into the sheepfold. So don't add rules. If you wanna, if you wanna be a Christian, you've gotta believe in Jesus plus fill in the blank. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his promise to come again. 
Believing in that, friend, is what saves you. Don't add to the gospel. Salvation comes by the grace of God alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And we know that part of faith includes repentance, right? It's the two sides of the same coin. We turn from our sin and trust in Christ. We know that repentance will be a lifelong journey. So if you're trying to clean yourself up and make yourself good and right before you come into the sheepfold, you're going to miss out. Just stop where you are and rest your case in Christ. He will clean you. He will transform you. It's critical that we get that. Salvation is not Jesus plus, it is Jesus alone. And we as a church must make sure that we are preaching and teaching the true gospel. We must never add anything to the gospel. Salvation is found in no other person or in any other way. It comes in Christ and in him alone. I love what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, Christ not only supplies the necessities of his people, but he gives them abundant and superabundant joy in the luxuries of his grace. You do not really preach the gospel if you leave Christ out. If he be omitted, it is not the gospel. You may invite men to listen to your message, but you are only inviting them to gaze upon an empty table unless Christ is the very center and substance of all that you set before them. Friends, as a church, we must make sure that the table that we prepare is a table that has Christ at the center of it. Be careful that we don't become like the Pharisees. So in Christ, and only in Christ, we have eternal life. Number two, we see that in Christ we have a secure life. In verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If you will have Jesus as your door, then you can rest assured that you will be saved and you will go in and out to find pasture. In Christ, we not only have salvation, that we also have safety and plenty. We have everything that we could ever need in him. Implied in this picture, if you will, this illustration that Jesus is using, he says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. So th this picture is the sheep going in and out of the sheepfold, not in and out of salvation. You have to be careful with figures of speech and parables in the Bible. If you make them to mean everything has its own little meaning and it's only this and only that, you need to understand that, that they serve as a general picture to kind of help us get, get the broader concept here. Just talking about the fact that the sheep would go into the sheepfold at night and then they would come out during the day under the watch care of a shepherd to graze in pastures. I mean, if they just stayed inside the sheepfold, they'd eat up all the grass and die, right? Starve to death. And what we're told here is that if you will enter the door, that you can rest assured that you will have this fellowship, this, this provision and protection by the shepherd. 
One of the roles of a shepherd is to make sure that sheep have good pasture and are able to go in and out from the sheepfold in safety to feed. And at night, in safety. Sheep are vulnerable creatures, and they're not the brightest. I've never had any sheep, literal sheep. But they need constant care and constant protection. It's a great image God chose to use to describe us, right? We're not the brightest of people. I don't care how many degrees you have behind your name. It's not the brightest of people. We, we need guidance. We need protection. We need someone outside of us to save us and someone outside of us to provide and protect us. And Jesus has the door the sheepfold is present to make sure the sheep can go in and out in security. I love the Psalms. In fact, right now I'm reading through the Bible this year, and it's just basically one of those plans that take you from the very beginning of Scripture all the way through. Uh, I know some plans I've used before. You can read Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. Right, I'm just reading straight through. And so right now I'm reading the Psalms. That's taking a while, but I'm reading the Psalms. I love the Psalms. Psalm 121 short. Let me just read it. Psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Certainly an allusion there to the last verse of Psalm 121. The Lord will keep our, going, our coming in and our going out. He is our keeper. He is our provider. He is our protector. He is the one through which we have security. Now, that security doesn't mean that we will never face the enemy. Remember, there are thieves and robbers trying to get in. There are dangers all around. doesn't mean that we will never face any kind of harm. But it does mean that we will have one who watches over us at all times and that will ultimately preserve us and keep us to the end. Not only does this imply that we will find security... But it also points out to the fact that we will have pasture. Think about that for a moment. Safety and security are not ends in and of themselves. I mean, what good is safety for safety's sake? I mean, who cares about safety if it's not for something more, right? If you don't have something that you're being protected from for something else, which leads me to the third point. So in Christ, we have eternal life. In Christ, we have a secure life. And in Christ, we have abundant life. See, the reason that Jesus keeps our going in and our coming out is so that we will know the fullness of his provision. Verse 10 
Again, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life, salvation, and have it abundantly. Abundantly. What is abundant life? I don't recommend going to the Christian bookstore and looking for books necessarily on what the abundant life is because many of them are wrong. I encourage you to look to the Bible to understand what the abundant life is. What is abundant life? Is it long life? Is it an easy, pain-free life? Is it a wealthy lifestyle? Is it having your quiver full of children? Is it having perfect grandchildren? Is the abundant life somehow missed even if you're not married? None of these things in and of themselves describe or define abundant life. What Jesus is getting at here is that we will have life to the full. We are saved and we are kept secure in Christ so that we might enjoy the abundance of the life that he's given us in the present and the life that he's given us in the future, eternally. We have everything that we need in him. No matter who you are, friend, today, right now, as I speak, you, young or old, Male or female, single or married, children or not, white or black, any of you, fill in the blanks of all the other kinds of people in this room. You have everything you need now and forever in Christ. Right now, if you know Jesus, you have everything you need to have abundant life. Abundant life has nothing to do with stuff. Many of us know the burden of having stuff, don't we? The more you accumulate, the more life becomes burdensome, not abundant. Abundant life does not equal stuff. In fact, I would argue the less stuff you have, the more abundant life is. I mean, people who have a lot of stuff, they kill themselves sometimes, don't they? They're miserable people. Like what James Montgomery Boyce wrote, he said, the abundant life is one in which we are content in the knowledge that God's grace is more sufficient for our needs, that nothing can suppress it, and that God's favor towards us is unending. Friends, we live in a world that's never satisfied. From the moment we breathe our first breath until we take our final one, we are bombarded by this message that you need more. You're not happy enough, are you? You just need more. You need this. You need that. You need this thing and that thing. You need... Oh, no, no. I mean, we're just bombarded by it constantly. You know what the sad truth is? We believe it. We believe it. I do need that 
upgraded iPhone, after all. As we live in a world that's never satisfied, this thirst and this quest for more and more and more and more and more and more will never be fulfilled outside of Jesus. But when you come through the door and you are given eternal life, you are also granted abundant life and you will find that in Christ, you have everything you could have ever needed and more. That Jesus is the unending, the never ending fountain of blessing. See, the world would seek to define the abundant life, I would say in two words, health and wealth. The more health you have, the more wealth you have, the more abundance you have. Christ would say that's not true. Abundant life is known and enjoyed by some of the sickest, not bad, but poor health. Some of the sickest and poorest people on the planet. There are people who are living in extreme poverty, facing the challenges of terrible health conditions that have supernatural joy. There are people who are living in high rises and mansions that are some of the most miserable people, healthy, Buy the best doctors money can buy. And they wouldn't know what joy was if it hit them in the face. Jesus came to give eternal life, but he's done far, far more than that, friends. Great Anglican J.C. Ryle wrote, Our Lord came that men who had life already, eternal life already, might have it more abundantly. That is, that they might see the way of life more clearly and have no uncertainty about the way of justification before God, and that they might feel the possession of life more sensibly and have more conscious enjoyment of pardon, peace, and acceptance. Let me read that again. Our Lord came that men who had life already might have it more abundantly. That is, that they might see the way of life more clearly and have no uncertainty about the way of justification before God, and that they might feel the possession of life more sensibly and have more conscious enjoyment of pardon, peace, and acceptance. What a marvelous summary. The abundant life. The abundant life is that we might see the way of life more clearly. There was no uncertainty about how we're justified before God and that we might feel the possession of life more sensibly and have a conscious enjoyment of pardon, peace, and acceptance. Just, friends, do you, do you see Jesus 
as this for you? Do you see Jesus as your only source of conscious enjoyment? No matter what comes your way, does your joy in him remain? Friends, there's many a Christian that by the finished work of Christ and faith in that have eternal life. But I believe there's many a Christian who are struggling to know the realities of abundant life that Christ has given them because they're seeking to sustain their joy on things that will never sustain them. So what about you? What about you? Have you entered the door? That's the most important question you will ever answer, not just today, but in your life. And it's not a question to mess around with. You're not promised another minute. You're not. I pray that you're given many years of life, but you're not promised that. Have you entered the door to the sheepfold? Have you come to Christ? Do you believe in him? you follow him? Are you feeding upon those lush pastures of God's rich provision? Are you trying to find it still yet in another way? Or maybe you're here today and you're fine outside of the sheepfold. Life's pretty good outside, you think. Jesus would simply tell you that you will never find eternal or abundant life outside of the fold. I think Lewis was right, C.S. Lewis. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Friend, there's no middle ground. No middle ground. He's either Lord and you worship him, or he's a lunatic and you blaspheme him. Either with the Pharisees or like this man in chapter 9, you say, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And what I see is far greater than I ever thought because of who's given it to me. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these things, Lord, it's my prayer that we would not in haste close our Bibles and in a moment stand and sing and run off into our day as if we've not heard from you. Lord, even now, by your Holy Spirit, my prayer is that you would press upon our hearts the truth of who Christ is. 
And Father, if there are any in this room that have not entered the door, have not come into the fold through Christ, Lord, would you lay it up on their hearts today that that is their only hope. They could keep searching and keep looking for peace in other ways, but Lord, would you, would you convict them, that, show them that they'll never find it outside of Christ. And Father, would you just powerfully and effectually call them to yourself today? Father, for those of us who are your sheep, who by your grace have come into the fold, Lord, would you help us to follow our shepherd, to take joy in the fact that we have a Savior who has given us everlasting life and also abundant life. Maybe we're struggling to experience the joys of those things today for whatever reason. Lord, would you work in our lives and help us to see these things and to feel that conscious enjoyment of pardon, peace, and acceptance. Father, we love you and we thank you knowing that you first loved us. Father, would you work in us today for your good pleasure. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.